podcast that comes at boxing from every angle from the fans opinion expert analysis and the added insight of what the bookmakers think might happen welcome to puncher's chance on the pinnacle podcast well what started as a planned monthly podcast back in february soon hit the buffers as a global pandemic meant the world of sport was put on hold fear not Boxing is back and so is Puncher's Chance and I'm here with two guests that will help you analyse the odds for all the upcoming fights. First, a warm welcome to Pinnacle's own Chris McCarthy. How are you, Chris? All good, Ben. Yeah, all good. Uh, glad to have the boxing back and obviously glad to be back on the pod, finally. Tom Craze from the Boxing Betting Show is back with us again. It's been a while, Tom. Are you good? It's been too long, Ben. Yeah, I'm delighted to be back. All good um, and always a pleasure to be here. Good. Glad to hear it. Um, before we dive into the action, I'd, I'd kind of like to maybe just ask you both before we get started, how has the, uh, how has the lack of boxing action been? Have you, you been coping well? Have you found a new passion to get involved in or has it just been a, a quiet few months for you? I've actually taken up knitting. <laughs> no, it's, uh, no it's, it's been hell actually for a boxing fan. There's been, there was kind of nothing to do uh, and you can only watch so many old fights without kind of looking ahead. Boxing is always about what's next, what's next and... Yeah, it was it was a long stretch. So I think officially the first US car came back in June. Um, so there's been kind of dribs and drabs, but it's taken until now, really, August, that things are starting to click into gear again, which is, uh, yeah, long overdue. And what about yourself, Chris? Watching, watching highlight reels and old fights, has there been much more to do than that? Um, yeah, I mean, as people who know me know that I regularly watch back over old fights and do analysis of things like that but I was uh you know I'm not going to lie I was uh struggling towards the end but I think with the with the soccer season coming back and things like that that kind of kept me occupied but now that the boxing's come back we've almost gone from kind of nothing to pretty much almost too much as such so it's uh it's looking good and glad to have it back it's on the seems to be on the right track and as I say it's better than, better than nothing I suppose. Right, well, I think, obviously, the, there's one obvious thing that we should cover first after boxing's been on quite the extended hiatus. And as with most sports around the world, it's the, the way they're managing it is this this bubble-type approach with as little contact as possible from the outside world. Um, no fans, of course, is, is going to be a massive one. We can get our fix from watching it on TV, but there's not going to be anyone in the, the stadiums, arenas, or, or Eddie Hearn's back gardens. But... Do you guys kind of, do you foresee any changes for boxing matches? Is there like a, an edge to be found with the, the drastic changes or, or do you think it's going to be fairly similar from what we've seen before in terms of looking for the edge in those betting markets? And is there is there much there to kind of work with? I think um, personally myself, um, I wouldn't say anything will drastically change. There's just a few kind of things like that we've discussed that, Probably in terms of having no fans at a boxing, boxing event, um, obviously that's going to make a difference with, um, you know, like with the crowd not being there. You can obviously hear, like you say, trainers 
shouting instructions. Um, I don't know about you, Tom, but I've heard a few few whispers coming from camps that basically um, on Sky on the fight camp series, they could hear kind of the, the commentary that Adam Smith and Matt Macklin were actually kind of saying. So I'm not sure if that's influencing the judges or whether that will actually make an make an impact on that. Um, it's hard to say. It's a small small sample size at the minute, um, so it's difficult to say exactly how it will affect it. But I think the main thing that I could take from it was from watching it on telly was kind of the things that I could hear from obviously the trainers and from the commentary as well. And I'm, it shouldn't sway judges' opinions, but obviously it can do. So I'm not sure what you think of that, Tom, but or if you even heard it, but I could hear it quite quite clearly on some parts. Yeah, I think it was the first um, the first fight camp show, and I think that's been remedied by moving the broadcast team into a just a perspex box, effectively, so kind of a bubble within a bubble. Um, and because there were complaints, I think it was um, it, a trainer Joe Gallagher who was who was saying like the, the commentary is biased. You're not, and and you can understand his point because if he's saying, well, I've got a fighter in the ring, and all they're hearing after they're landing punches, good solid work is the commentator saying, well, that's great work by the opponent. How are they meant to respond to that mentally to say, well, hang on, why is my, not, why is my work not being acknowledged by the, the commentator here? And is that going to affect the judges who are also in kind of earshot of the, uh, of the broadcaster? So it's, that's definitely a factor. Um, I think the other point there that you touched on, Chris, is obviously the lack of crowds um, negates any kind of um, home advantage um home advantage is is one of those things which not every fighter has but there you know there are a few major major kind of draws uh, and local fighters on on these big cards and you know you'll, you'll get the londoners and then you'll get the guys who can fill out uh you know the liverpool or manchester arena and it's it's kind of an intangible but for me when i'm when i'm looking at a price one of the key approaches is as as you would it with a, a, a like you say a, a soccer game or um, you, know, you know, is this fighter at home, and how much is that going to to add into the the weight of the price? I think from from kind of everything that I can, you know, everything that you can really really perceive about boxing behind closed doors, you have to assume as a football that home advantage is gone. There's no crowd to distract the judges, or rather influence the judges. So whereas before you you, you know potentially have a raucous uh, applause to every kind of um, successful flurry by the the home fighter that's no longer there so look, judges should, should never really get influenced by the crowd but at the end of the day they are only human um yeah so sure, remove, yeah. removing that you, you're kind of the the away fighter or you know the non-house fighter in, in theory has a, a better chance yeah i think i think as well like with the obviously having no crowds and that kind of thing i think that it definitely matters on kind of the style of the fighter and you touch on like home advantage as, as well, Tom, and there's been some like analysis with the soccer season. I think in the Bundesliga, it was, um, I think there was a percentage of teams that kind of changed in terms of how many they were winning at home um, and it dropped quite significantly. But, um, I think in boxing, like you say, it's with with that home advantage, in, in terms of the style of a fighter, if you've got like a, like a Ricky Hatton, type fighter who's obviously like an aggressive come forward kind of milks off the crowd um then in terms of from a betting angle if I was betting on a fight and it was someone who fights in that style I would definitely 
either reconsider the bet or look at the price to see whether that's actually kind of factored into it because going back to that a little bit as well was like you said with the Manchester Arena or the Liverpool Arena um it's it definitely it doesn't obviously obviously skills win the fight in the end but it definitely has an influence on it because Say, for example, the Ricky Hatton fight against Costa Ju that packed out 20,000 in the MEN. I personally, myself, if that had been behind closed doors with no crowd, I'm not saying that Hatton would not have not have won that fight, but I think it would have been possibly a lot a lot tighter and he was influenced heavily by the crowd that night. Um, whereas if you've got a fight as someone like a Floyd Mayweather or a slick boxer, um, someone who doesn't necessarily pay too much attention to the crowd or need a lift, from the crowd I'd sort of I would be in terms of a betting perspective I'd be more inclined to bet on a fight like that rather than kind of risk my money with someone who I think might not might not perform as well without a crowd so in terms of analyzing it I'd probably look um, and see what kind of style the fighter is how they fight look at the history of where they fought and how they kind of buzz off of a crowd and if they've ever lost from on the way turf and things like that Definitely is a factor. Like I say, small sample size at the minute, but I think it, from my perspective, it depends on the style of the fighter and to how it will influence kind of the outcome. I think another another possible angle is, and you might have to have very kind of fast fingers on this, but certainly with the the matchroom fight camp shows, they've made a very conscious effort to mic up the uh, the corners much more than they would in an ordinary, um, I say, an ordinary kind of a with crowds. Uh, type fight so the the emphasis has been on that kind of visceral hearing the punches land hearing the you know at at times you've even been able to kind of hear the fighters breathing in the ring which is which is quite something um but the the onus really has been on kind of getting in right amongst the corners um with with the camera work and although it's been slightly impeded by the fact that um kind of almost post a copper sorry almost post apocalyptic um you know trainers are wearing masks and visors and it all looks very sci-fi the the broadcasters are definitely trying to pick up what the instructions are to the fighters in the corner now if you're following a fight in play and for example a uh, one of the two fighters has the other on kind of figuratively on the ropes in the previous round and, and the trainer is is quite clearly and loosely saying to their uh, their guy or, or girl rather um look, this is the round you need to go and finish them, or they're saying, actually, just take your time, go back to boxing on the back foot, don't rush anything, then that could affect how you approach the fight in terms of, you know, potentially betting on the stoppage in the next round live in play, um, or or kind of conversely, if they're saying, look, don't don't rush, just just go back to go back to the plan, then you're going to go the other way and, and, and you know, potentially back the, the overs, as it were. Yeah, I think that that definitely influences the the better, doesn't it? From uh from that side of thing, you're getting a lot more insight into what's actually going on. You can hear the analysis, what they're obviously, like you say, they're telling them to do. So you're gonna generally stick stick with what they're saying, I suppose. Remember, like you said as well, with the with the kind of noise and things like that as well. Watch a few kind of um, highlights from a couple of the American shows, and you can really hear the punches landing and things like that. But I know on a lot of uh, big cards in America, they normally put the mic, I think, above the centre of the ring, so you can hear the hear the punches a lot louder. Um, that's still the case now, but obviously you can hear them even more louder now, and it does it does kind of make a, a lasting impact on what you can hear, and it's definitely, I think, something that will 
kind of influence the punter, give them a bit more insight into what they can actually hear. But like you say, Tom, you'd have to obviously be be all ears in to be able to kind of take it in, and you'd have to be quick on quick on your fingers to take advantage of that. Well, the the hearing of the trainers was was one of the things that I was really interested to get to get your guys' opinion on, and you've you've covered that quite well. And and obviously the home advantage was the other one I had in mind. And again, you've you've really kind of dug into that. The the one element of the home advantage that that I find really interesting is we talk a lot about the the impact of fans and what that might have, but also there's the the psychological side of it where people talk about defending your territory or, or your home turf. And obviously when you're in a ring fighting someone, it doesn't get more literal than that of defending your home turf. But do you think, I mean, I guess one is, do you see that being like a, a slight edge still to, to home fighters? And then secondly, for both fighters without the fans, are you are you concerned or worried about a lack of intensity in the fight, or do you think that fighters are capable of of still finding that motivation and and still kind of going hammer and tong or, or putting on a decent show, even though there isn't people there cheering them on? I'll say, the, I was going to say that um, from my perspective, I think kind of the the advantage as such as a fighter is more kind of the familiarity with like your surroundings, um, so. I think I think you touched it on your own podcast, Tom. I was listening to um, the other day. You had um, Andy Clark on from Sky, and he was talking about how kind of that influences fights or fighters. And I think with that again, it goes back to kind of the mentality of the fighter. I think that with, like you say, Ben, like kind of defending your patch and things like that, it, it generally will depend on the mentality and the whether they can kind of handle the occasion psychologically, because you'll get fighters who can kind of go away to America, big crowds or obviously no crowds in this case, and they would they would thrive off it. They would love the occasion, whether it's whether there's people in the arena or not. So a good example would probably be someone like a Tyson Fury who could go away and a mentally strong character who can fight anywhere, whether he was fighting. And I think you could he could probably fight a Deontay Wilder in, you know, a small arena. Or you could fight him in a big arena. It wouldn't matter to him. But you get other guys who kind of they they'll kind of buckle under that pressure. So I think that without crowds, if you're in a way fighter who psychologically isn't quite as kind of uh you know take to it as such, then I think that it'll it will benefit you from that. But in terms of if you're a fighter who's psychologically strong and and you know strong minded, I don't think it will make too much difference to how you perform yeah I, th- I think the other thing with that is that certainly at the moment until at least a, you know a smattering of crowds returns in terms of home advantage and defend the, the notion of defending your own turf actually all arenas are a little bit alien at the moment because to, to kind of give you some example the the first top uh the first u.s shows the, the top ranked shows came back and they are um basically in, in, in a small room at a, a, a casino. Um, but, you know, they're obviously used to fighting in the, the main arena. Um, the shows over on uh, BT Sport in the UK, the Frank Warren shows, they were in uh, literally the BT Sport TV studio um, until last week where, where they had to clear out because the Champions League yeah. coverage was was in there and took priority. So, um, and, and funnily enough, what they did then is move to the, the York Hall, which is an iconic... Um, kind of East London venue for boxing and most I say most uh, certainly a, 
a large number of UK domestic fighters will have fought in the in the York Court at some point, whether as an amateur or a pro. But because of the production values required and so on, the venue was dressed up so much that it looked like a a TV set. It looked more almost more like a TV studio than the TV studio did. And so even if you're used to fighting in York Hall and you've got these kind of um, you've got a balcony kind of almost right on top of the ring. Um, it's very, very compact arena. And when it's full um, with, with spectators, it's fantastic. But I think even if you're in there and you're like, well, hang on, this is this is, you know, where I'm used to fighting. I've got an unbeaten record here. I've never lost. And you're looking around and thinking, where is everyone? This isn't that that can almost be a little bit unsettling. Um, and then, of course, you, you look at the, the matchroom cards at, uh, at Fight Camp and it's being held in Eddie Hearn's, um, or, you know, the matchroom offices back lawn. And of course, no one's fought there. So it's everyone is kind of finding their way, I think. And, uh, you know, unless you really remove yourself from it. And of, of course, if you're, you know, these are professionals at the end of the day, and they should be able to perform wherever they are. But I think it, there is a, a, an element of people being, well, you know, it, this, this is this is level, this is level pegging, really. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched as well a bit on it there, Tom. I mean, I've um i've been involved in some fights before that have been kind of away from home by home obviously being the uk and obviously i'm not fighting in the arena but obviously you get to walk into the arena early uh there maybe might be erecting the ring up and things like that and it's very eerie in there um and even myself as someone who's not going to be fighting it actually generally makes you a bit nervous like you, you almost get nervous yourself when you think like well you know, why am I getting nervous when I, I'm not the one that's going to be taking the punches? But it naturally makes you nervous. So, um, and that's obviously when there's no crowd in there. So I'm presuming that that's what it's going to feel like a little bit when you go in and fight. Because as you know, Tom, if you walk into a boxing arena at five o'clock when, you know, there's one one fight going on that's the first fight on the card and you can kind of hear the bell go in and things like that. It's very loud, but also eerie in it. And it's, uh, I think, it, like you say, it just depends on the mentality of the fighter. But it's definitely something that, like, I'll certainly keep a close eye on over the next uh, few weeks. And I think, I think we'll get more of a, more of a kind of gauge of how it will affect fighters the longer it goes on. Um, like I've said before, it's a bit more sample size at the minute. But once we get a lot of these fights at the minute, are kind of fights that the 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 home fighter, as such, is you know predicted to win, and the odds are very short, so they're kind of not. It's not really making too much of an effect. Whereas this weekend, for example, the fight card this weekend, you've got a few more 50-50 fights that you might actually see how it plays out to an effect, you know, without any without any fans and whether it does actually make a difference to some of them fighters. I certainly think you're, you're dealing with subtleties, aren't you? Because as, as you say, it, this may come down to the matchmaking and a, a lot of these fights, or certainly, you know, a proportion of them have been literally about fighters getting out and shaking off some cobwebs for a tune-up before a bigger fight later in the year or so on but there haven't been many upsets so far um there you know very very few so the maybe it's a little bit of a fanciful notion to say that you know suddenly the underdog has got all the advantages in the world or or the favorite has got them diminished but so far it is going certainly to the um to the numbers yeah yeah i mean i think like prior to everything i mean eddie Hearn was kind of talking up um about you know 50 50 fights and things like that i think i saw that i think the average boxing 
rankings of box tricks, but all the opponents was, I think, 142 in fight camp so far. So basically what that means is on average, uh, the opponents as such who are fighting, the, as you would say, the home fighter have been ranked 142 in the world, which has led to kind of a lot of one-sided fights and Tom touching it there that it's more been about kind of getting guys out um, to actually have a fight rather than these fights are particularly competitive. I mean, some of them have been extremely uncompetitive and almost kind of, some of them are a little bit worrying, to be honest. I mean, the Anthony Fowler fight the other week, um, that was kind of, you know, just a non-star. It was just, it was a, almost a little bit, a little bit embarrassing, really. You've got like a GB guy who's been on the GB squad for years going in against, you know, a guy, a guy who's kind of not boxed for two years. And I think his last fight, Harper's last fight, I think, was against Billy Bird at Brentwood Leisure Centre. And then he's going in against kind of a guy who's tipped to potentially go on to world honours. I mean, I'm not sure that the matchmaking for that is great. Um, but like you say, these fighters have to get out and they have to they have to box at some point. So they're kind of taking a reduced pay and then kind of just getting who they can. I think the I think that the the bigger fights and stuff, I don't think that some of these generally have reduced pay behind those doors. So it'll be interesting to see how it actually develops moving forward. I think the, the uh, sorry, I think the, the the last bit I'd like to touch on that is that. Pardon me. Firstly, <laughs> as we said at the start of the show, it's uh, it's it's a lot better than nothing, and that's for sure. But but also the the restrictions are such that because there have been so far very few. It, it's kind of starting this weekend with um, Povetkin, you know, a, a Russian guy. But so far, it's been essentially all domestic fights because, of course, the the travel restrictions and the quarantines and so on meant that you, you're working with a domestic talent pool. So, firstly, that's much smaller, and you've got much fewer people to choose from. But it does give these guys a bit of a chance and have put themselves in the in the shop window. And you, you've seen a few people. Um, uh, Eric Donovan was was an example last week. He fought um, Zelfa Barrett. He ended up getting um, stopped in the fight. He lost the fight, but he put on such a good performance that the sentiment at the end was, well, well that was great. You know, he needs to come back. And, and the chances are before that Zelfa Barrett would not have fought someone like Derek, uh, Eric Donovan. He would have potentially a, a, a European guy or a South American guy potentially um, so there's a bit more of an emphasis on the um, kind of the homegrown talent in, in a way which I think can only be a positive yeah I think I, I definitely agree definitely agree on agree with it I think the I think the thing that people more will come around is the paramount of the safety of the fighters is probably something that I would say in terms of chucking you know trying to feed in someone to the lion lions as such who's not on that level but Again, it's that's something a completely different conversation. <laughs> a lot of the stuff we're we're talking about is kind of on the night type things and what might happen when these two guys step into the ring and and kind of when that that bell rings and the fight starts. But the obvious other thing is, as you two who bet on boxing quite regularly and I'm sure you you value greatly, is the the build up or the the fighters' preparation to a fight. And boxers, unlike whether it's soccer or, or NBA, these these fighters are used to having kind of extended periods where they might not be in action and that they obviously go through their camps, have a little bit of downtime, they get to enjoy life a little bit more. One of the questions I had or, or was thinking about was, do you think lockdown and, I mean, for a lot of people, nothing to do but maybe exercise 
Is that going to be a, a positive or would you kind of flip it the other way and say some fighters in their camp need that big team around them to, to go to the gym and get the motivation to really kind of push them along and whether it's make, work, make weight or get fight fit or whatever it is. Because obviously, I mean, I don't know how many people that you that the fighters often have around them in the big gyms, but it's like that, that number is going to be considerably reduced to, to remain safe and everything like that. So if you kind of take take a step back and, and not we're talking about on the night of the fight, but the preparation, have you two put any thought to what kind of lockdown or, or coronavirus might do in that respect? I think I think with that, it comes down to, A, like you say, the discipline of the fighter, the whole, um, obviously it's well documented in the boxing world that some fighters live a better life in, in terms of others. Um, I think like a good example would probably be um Billy Joe Saunders um obviously was in line to fight Canelo at some point um the fight got put back uh to a later date and obviously now the talk was that you know it's a reduced purse and things like that and then Billy Joe Saunders wasn't ready as he would say because he would probably for a fight of that magnitude which he's putting almost all of his marbles on the line for that fight from what he's built up his whole career he's going to want kind of a 10 to 12 week camp. Whereas someone like Canelo, for example, who is a multi-millionaire kind of fighter, he can draw upon kind of extra resources and things like that. So he'll, he'll likely have a gym that he trains in. He's probably got a gym built in his, in his house kind of thing. Whereas if we're talking the fight camp stuff, the lower level stuff, it's more down to how disciplined that fighter actually is. So um, you can tell if they, you know, if they've skipped skipped today's training and things like that, and it's it more comes down to, I think, it, again going back to the, the match, you've got a fighter who knows he's a lot more talented than someone else who he's going in with. So, like Tom touched upon the domestic level fights, they don't they might not necessarily have to train as hard to kind of get into shape to beat someone like that. Whereas if you've got kind of a mega fight where you've got like a Billy Joe Saunders going in against a Canelo. Um, then yeah, you're going to have to going to have to obviously get your get your 12 weeks in and have all the right you know strength conditioning, kind of go away from camp, lock away, lock yourself away. Whereas other fighters, it just depends on the kind of the level that it's at and kind of the privileges that they they have and how they how much they can how much they can spend on a camp. Really, it kind of comes down to that. But yeah, in terms of just the domestic level fight like that, it just it be the difference between you know keeping yourself in shape. Um, no different to kind of the average guy who's been sitting around in lockdown. You've got someone who's put on a load of weight or someone who's, you know, got really fit and been going out running and cycling something every day. It's no no real difference to that. Yeah, no, I, I think it depends very much on the on the fighter. Um, ideally, in you know, in an ideal world, or, and certainly for most fighters would demand that you're looking somewhere between a, you know, a, a 10 to 12 week camp really for a big fight. Um any shorter than that, people, you know, start getting a little bit, a little bit twitchy. But lockdown, it should have been the ideal opportunity. But I think it depends very much on the individual. Um, there was an example uh, the past weekend. Um, a, a Mexican guy called David Benavides. He was the WBC uh, world champion at super middleweight. Now he uh, ended up losing his. Um, sorry, let me redo that. Now he ended up uh, losing his world title on the scales in in that he weighed in too heavy um, and therefore wasn't eligible to compete for the the belt that he owned. 
uh, his opponent would have been able to win it had he, he beaten. But he effectively forfeited his own title because he couldn't make the weight. Now, if you've had that long to prepare for a fight, surely that there's, I mean, there's no excuse for that really, other than you've taken your eye off the ball or you're complacent. Um, and Benavidez that night, he was going in against a guy um, who was a, a rank underdog. Benavidez was a, a 10 on favorite. Uh, so you, you think, look, is he just not that interested? And and so everything that he's he's spent all these years working up to, to have and defend this title, he's, he's just given up out of, you know, just something so easily avoided. But, on you know, you kind of flip that round to, uh, I don't know, a guy like Lou Clay, who's on the undercard on the Dillian White um, Povetkin card this weekend. He, uh, I saw him post for a, in, a, in a post photo in a tweet um, last night, he is a, a welterweight, but he's about as chiselled as I think it's probably possible for a human to get. He, he, he looks fantastic. And you just think, okay, he's in a, a basically a pick and fight. He's, you know, just just above even money or thereabouts. Is it because he's got a tougher fight that he's prepared much better? Is, is it because he's at a different stage of his career when he's when he's on the kind of the, the upwards arc and he's he's just a bit hungrier and he just wants it more? It's... I think it's very much, uh, this is a, a kind of an idiosyncratic thing really, isn't it? But um, yeah, and another example actually is Dillian White himself. Um, he went away to uh, Portugal right back at, I think it was maybe early March, February, something like that. And Trey did his entire camp for this fight over in Portugal. Um, has come back a, a lot, lot trimmer than he uh, looked in his last fight in um, in December, he's lost a lot of weight. So you, you can see that certain people react to it very, very differently. And I think if you've got that bit between your teeth, um, a, a kind of enforced uh, lockdown was was a blessing in disguise, really, for some. Do you think, do you think yeah, do you, touching at them, do you think that that will predominantly like affect the kind of quality of the fights that we'll be getting as such as, as fans or as betters and stuff like that? Because like you say, if you've got guys like Benavides who are well known for kind of, he's missed weight a couple of times off um, if they're kind of going in against these guys where they're 10 to 1 on favourites, they're probably just going to take, you know, fights for the easy payday. Whereas, like you say, if you've got a big world title fight, do you think fighters might not want to take them due to the due to having to get in shape or the risk that it might come? I think it's it's probably we'll probably have to obviously see down the line, but I definitely think it's gonna gonna impact in some way. Yeah, I mean I think there was an example of that with um uh, Vasily Lomachenko and, and Tiafimo Lopez and the fact that the, the fight was all but announced or all but finalised before um, the pandemic hit effectively um, but of course then there came the stumbling block of well there's not going to be any crowds in the arena therefore the promoter doesn't have any gate revenue which is for a fight of that scale you're talking you know seven figures and and so what they had to do is, is revise the offer and then Lopez who is the uh, one of the champions at like where he, he he said, "Well, you know, this is not the money that I wanted. I need to be paid more for this, irrespective of the fact that, yeah, 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 more like you say along them lines. Whereas someone like a Lopez or a Ryan Garcia or someone like that who can effectively be the B side in a fight, but also probably think of themselves as the A side." So when they're getting these reduced purses and stuff like that, I think it's going to prove very, very difficult to make um, some of the big fights, especially if they've already been on the table because fighter A seeing that he was going to get 
X amount. Fighter B was saying he's going to get X amount. And then what happens is due to the pandemic, they come to the table again and the promoter's like, well, what we're going to do now is we're going to do it behind closed doors, but and there's going to be no fans in there and you're going to be on, you know, 30, 40% reduced from what you was before. They're just going to obviously not, not go ahead with the fight. So I think that that's why we'll probably see a few of these as they say, knockover jobs um, up until we kind of can potentially get get crowds into the boxing. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing is that that can only, in, in both senses of the of the phrase, that can only go on for so long in that I think everyone's fairly, certainly fairly hopeful at least, that crowds will return in some in, in some form by maybe September, October, or, and, you know, uh, certainly by the end of the year. But then the other aspect on that is that Fight, unless they're fighting, fighters don't get paid. So are you going to take a reduction on what your market value would be kind of pre-COVID or are you going to accept the fact that the world is, is, is changing? It's, it, you know, these are different, um, it's a d- different kind of uh, economic picture. It's it's one of those, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think, I think the guys, the journeyman level fighters, they'll, they'll, a lot of them, they'll, they'll jump in at notice and that's why you'll probably see some of these fighters on kind of fight camp and that because like you said earlier Tom it's taking that chance they probably never would have got so even if someone like a um I don't know, someone like a like a Mick Hall for example who's like a, almost like a like a club level fighter but he fights domestic fights and he'll go he'll go in against anyone some of them guys they're probably not even too bothered about what they're actually getting paid they kind of just want a bit of tv exposure um and it'll probably create a few more chances for fighters like that to get on tv and Stuff like that. So if you flip it around, it could be a good thing for, for obviously the the lower level fighters. But in terms of small hall shows, yeah, they'll they'll struggle. You're going to get probably guys who are big ticket sellers who will you know really really struggle out of this because that will you know they're not like you say they're not going to have boxing's their job. They need to they need to get paid. Um, they need to fight. If there's no if there's no crowds, they're selling you know upwards of three, four, five, six hundred tickets in a fight, then that obviously massively affects them, massively affects their purse and things like that. And it, it will come back to kind of not be a good thing. But I suppose, like you say, down the line, we'll see how much it does affect them and see the kind of quality of the fights that we get once we can analyse it after, you know, three or four months action. Right, let's uh, let's talk about some of the upcoming fights that we've got then. Um, we've already had some fights, as you've both alluded to, to, to ease us back into boxing, but Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin is the first really big fight that we've got to, to get into. Um, Pinnacle has White as a, a pretty substantial favourite for this one, 1.296, which gives him a, a 74% chance of winning the fight. Povetkin is at 3.69 and, and then obviously takes the remaining 26% with Pinnacle's offering of no draw odds on the fight. Um, we can we can talk about the matchup in a little bit, um, but but let's first get some some initial reaction to to those odds. So so Chris, I'll go over to you first. How do you feel about White being a seventy four percent chance favourite against Povetkin? Uh, yeah, I think it's about right. Um, the stage we're at at the minute. Um, obviously, Povetkin is well known uh, to the UK fans, um, and I think that I think that he'll. Like I say, he'll come. He'll come over in. He's a he's a very good fighter, um, but he is forty years old. Um, so obviously, you have to factor in the price into that. Dillian White um, undefeated since he got knocked out against Joshua, um, but since then he's been on a you know a, an extremely 
good reign of form. Um, he's boxed, I wouldn't say the top, top guys of the of the division, but he's been in with like Oscar Rivas, Joseph Parker, guys like that, and Feet and all them come through. So I think that he warrants, you know, he warrants those odds. Um, again, he's a younger, fresher guy on the up. Um, Povetkin's kind of a, the older guy, kind of potentially on the decline. So I think that them their mods kind of sit probably just about where I'd kind of price it up if I was doing it myself. And what about you, Tom? Do you think White deserves to be so short against Povetkin? I don't think it's a million miles away. Um, I mean, looking, I've seen a few prices float around um, and, and Pinnacles is actually one of the the best on, on White. Um, he's about 1.25 um, at, at kind of worst elsewhere. And I think that when you, when you convert that into, you know, saying he's an 80% chance, that's getting a little bit uh, slim, but when the the fight was first announced back in um, February, White opened at um, around about the same price, one point three, uh, one point three two, I think I saw. Um, I think that's almost backable. Um, I think having him about three on is about right. Um, if you're asking me to pick a winner, I certainly think it will be white um in in many ways i think it's a really bad style matchup for povetkin um as chris said he is um he's getting on although he's been performing at a high level in his late 30s for you know for some time um but white is much much bigger physically he's looking in excellent shape uh, as well and and he can he can really punch as well povetkin is always dangerous but he's he, he kind of looked a little bit a little bit worn down, a little bit tired back in December. Um, I think that's, I think that's the, the probably why it's been priced at that price. I mean, they was both on the undercard of the Joshua fight, um, which was the rematch with Andy Ruiz. Um, he fought Michael Hunter, who's a solid kind of American heavyweight, and he looked, from my perspective, looked like he was a, a little bit long in the tooth. He was, and he predominantly gasses um, in fights as well. Um, White, again, didn't look great against uh, Wack, but he was predominantly out of shape in that fight and come in and still got the job done. So in terms of how they priced it up, they're probably looking at White kind of in top form when he's been boxing, you know, Joseph Parker and Oscar Rivas and Derek Chisora and these kind of guys. And they've looked at the decline of Povetkin at 40 years old. The fact he didn't look great in his last fight, although, again, Hunter is a good fighter um, and they've probably factored that in so I'd say yeah, it's a roundabout, roundabout correct. I'd say. I think the the, the question with this is, and it, it, obviously it's kind of one that I've been trying to ask myself is, if if this isn't the right price for white, then what is? Because if someone was laying one point four, one point four four, one point four two, I would be kind of all over that. In, in, in yeah. you know, because that that feels much too big. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, Povetkin, like I say, he's forty, but he is. He is still a good fighter. Um, I, th- I think I wrote about it for Pinnacle the other week, and he's he's technically he's probably a better fighter than than White. He's got you know tremendous kind of amateur pedigree. I think he was a gold Olympic gold medalist. He's boxed predominantly you know the top guys in the division. Um, I think he's only lost I think two fights to I think one was to Klitschko when Klitschko was kind of dominating, and then he lost to Joshua. Um, I think a yard, kind of a yardstick for it, because they both boxed Joshua. And both were stopped by Joshua at around about a similar time in a similar fashion. But I think since White was stopped by Joshua, he's gone on to 
kind of massively improve. Um, whereas I think with Povetkin, like we just touched on earlier, with him being 40 years old, he's kind of he's kind of stayed at the same level or potentially declining. Um, one kind of interesting factor that played out this week, I think you saw, Tom, it was obviously he's split with Mark Tibbs now, who was his trainer, who was predominantly responsible for, you know, improving him to that kind of level. Um, and I think he's called in Dave Colwell into his corner this weekend. So it'll be interesting how that kind of plays out. Is that, has he called Dave Colwell in? Because he's, you know, he's maybe a little bit nervous or he wants to, you know, someone who's got experience if it, you know, goes wrong or stuff like that. It, it'll probably be interesting to hear the kind of tactics and stuff that come out from the corner. And obviously without any crowds, we'll, you know, we'll be privileged to be able to actually hear that. So that might be a good factor. Yeah, I mean, for if, if you're a white backer or if you're considering backing white, the, the element of that trainer change is definitely one to consider and it's definitely a variable. Um, White's chief trainer will be um, Xavier Miller, who a lot of people won't know, um, but he was one of the guys who White has been over in the, uh, I think it was in the Algarve, but over in Portugal with. Um, uh, he's an American guy. And, and whenever people don't know a trainer, whenever boxing fans don't know a trainer, they think he's useless. And it, that was the case when Tyson Fury, for example, took on um, Sugar Hill. Uh, and people saying, well, this is, you know, isn't going to work. And he was the best he's ever looked. Um, there's an argument to say that White would have obviously adapted to the new style. It would have been a, a relationship and a partnership that they've worked on over the past four or five months. Um, but at the same time, Mark Tibbs was the guy who's got dealing White where he is today. So, it, you know, that is a not necessarily a red flag, but it's certainly something to consider before... In the same way that, you know, if you've got a, a brand new, foot, uh, sorry, if you've got a new coach on a, a football or a soccer team, how are, how are they going to look? You, you don't really know and, until they get in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Povetkin predominantly is a is a pressure fighter um, and White's kind of had plenty of experience with them kind of fighters in his last few fights. So he fights similar to Shizora, similar to Rivas, but the thing that, Vetkin kind of does differently to them guys is he throws a lot his, his hooks are a lot shorter and it's quite an interesting one that they both their best punch for both fighters is the left hook so um you're gonna obviously see some good exchanges in the fight Vetkin's very um he's very crafty with the way he comes in he kind of kind of ducks low and kind of looks to looks to kind of faint as he comes in and throws the left hook it can be surprising so I would I wouldn't be surprised one bit if White's hurt in this fight or you know potentially stunned because in previous fights that he's been in he has been he has been hurt in a lot of you know in a lot of the fights he was hurt against Parker almost you know out on his feet in the 12th round he was hurt quite badly against Oscar Rivas he was I think Robert even Robert Hellanius I think hurt him a little bit and kind of obviously Joshua knocked him out so he has he, he has been hurt a lot and Povetkin in terms of over a 12 round fight White is definitely the favourite um personally myself I fancy White to stop him between 9 and 12 or win on points but in terms of if someone's looking for that bet that would be a you know like a lot of guys for the knockout it's it's certainly possible because the vet can can punch and he is he is dangerous regardless of kind of his age he he definitely still brings you know quality quality into the fight yeah just for me to to kind of I know I think it was David Price Povetkin absolutely took his head off didn't he but but he also I mean I seem I seem to remember in that fight as well he did get Povetkin was hurt as well so is that one 
Chris has kind of touched upon it there, Tom, in terms of points versus knockout and those available markets and the the other options to look at. So outside of the the money line for the fight, is there anything there that is tempting you for, for the method of victory or, or anything like that? I think it's a really tough one to call. You had, um, I think it was a white stoppage is about about seven to five. Um, so slight odds against uh, and the... I think the stoppage I saw at six to four, so plus, um, sorry, not plus, uh, so 2.5. Um, it really, I think it really depends how White approaches it, uh, because it, if he's drawn into the kind of fight where that Povetkin probably wants, there's a greater chance at the same time of, of White getting the stoppage. If White wants to play it a little bit cautious, and again, this is a factor with, um, with Miller, the new trainer, will he ask? Uh, will he ask White to box? Because White is putting an awful lot on the line with this fight. He's got the uh, the mandatory position for the WBC title at the moment, held by Tyson Fury. This is the last kind of hurdle he needs to get through, and he keeps putting himself in these really tough fights. So it's if if he messes up now, you know, it's all of that work is is gone. Um, so there's a chance that he will box and maybe a little bit more cautiously. Um, you know, that he acknowledges the threat there that Povetkin is going to face. Um, I think, interestingly, since White has kind of ramped up his level of opposition um, to fringe world level, at least, he had um, Joseph Parker, he beat him on um, on points. Oscar Rivas, he won a decision as well. Um, and Maris Vak in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, so three of his White's last four have all gone the distance. And I think if there's a late rush of money on this fight, I would imagine it would be for White by stoppage, which would be where you, you think maybe the, the, the kind of the square money would come in a little bit more. Um, and for me, I would be looking if the uh, the White price on a decision were to drift a little bit, I think there's a chance that it will, um, that, that could turn into value. So if, if you're going White on decision, Chris, I think you were floating around a, a late white stoppage or potentially decision. If you had to go either way, which which would you side with? I think that I think this fight starts out um, Povetkin very dangerous for the first five to six rounds. Um, I expect after six rounds for Povetkin to start kind of feeling the heat, and I think that when providing white kind of doesn't gas himself out too early. I think he'll put his put his foot down and I expect I, I saw signs of it in the Hunter fight, um, which was the last fight that we fought and I, and I, I expect White to stop him between nine and twelve. Um backup would be White on points, but either way I think I, I think that White, barring a miraculous left hook from Bebekin, I think that White White wins. Well, another notable name we've got on the card and what should be a, another good fight is is with Katie Taylor coming up against Delphine Persoon for the, the second time. This one had plenty of controversy around the decision in the first fight. And despite many probably thinking that, that Taylor was fortunate to win the first one, she's she's a real heavy favourite for the rematch. Odds of 1.260 give her a over 76% chance of the win. So Persoon down at 4.0 gets the other 24% chance. This one, I guess, the, the first question then is, what are your thoughts on the first fight? And then what does that mean in terms of trying to find value in the betting markets? Do you do you think we're going to see more of the same? And 
potentially a close decision or, or does Taylor come back with a vengeance and kind of prove her point and, and win this one easily as the odds might suggest? I'll open the floor. I mean, I think that, I think in terms of ability, um, I think Taylor is a better boxer than, and I think that in terms of the actual odds, um, and I was looking at it as, like you touched on Ben, I think that soon was, could potentially be regarded as a, as a value bet at that kind of price around about 4.0, working out about three to one. So if you did watch the first fight and then you're looking at this fight and seeing their mods, you would probably think that was value. I think that the reason um, Katie Taylor didn't win that fight as she should have done in the first time, I think she got drawn in a bit by um, the crowd um, because it was Madison Square Garden on the undercard of Joshua. So I think it was one of the fights kind of, she kind of played a little bit up to the crowd, um, which made her come in and she was exchanging and just pretty much at one point they were standing in the middle of the ring, just almost having like a straight in the, straight in the middle of the ring and just having it out. And it, it didn't bode well to her style. So I think that the fact that there's not going to be any fans in there this time um, and the fact that she's had time to kind of adapt to no person's style and things like that, I think that having no crowd will actually suit Katie Taylor a lot more because I think she'll... She'll look to come in, do her work, get out, kind of quick flurries, and she certainly won't be want to want to be exchanging like she did in the last fight. And that's the reason I think that this fight has been priced how it is. Um, again, Persoon, I think she's around about the same age as Taylor, maybe a little bit older. I think Taylor's like thirty-four, she's thirty-five, so not much in that. I think that I expect Katie Taylor's come into this and kind of perform better than she did in the first fight, and I. I fancy her to win on points. Yeah, look, I think uh, I think actually even at 1.25, 1.26 um, or thereabouts, I, th- I actually think Taylor is um, still borderline value. She opened a, a little bit bigger earlier in the year and it was about um, 1.44 and that didn't last long. And I, I, f- I felt that was much too generous. Um, for me, the odds on this are a little bit too reactive, which is, Weird in a way, considering the first fight was, you know, 12, 14 months ago. Um, I I can kind of um, emphasise with the people who felt that Persoon, and it seemed to be the majority of people, felt that Persoon did enough to win. Um, it was a really close fight, but I think if anyone... If anyone won more than six rounds, I think it was, I think it was Persoon. Um, but as Chris said, yeah... Um, but as you said, Chris, Taylor is, I think, without doubt, certainly technically the better fighter. Um, I don't know what she was doing in the first fight, to be honest. She kind of just got drawn into, like I say, probably drawn into the occasion, drawn into the crowd, probably wanted to impress Madison Square Garden. Um, and just, yeah, the fight was probably not how they would have hoped from her corner. But I think, like you say, it will change this time around. Another factor with, with this is Persoon has had a bit of a an up and down year um, at the start of the year she decided to try her luck at qualifying for um tokyo uh, which obviously didn't happen full stop in the end but that didn't go very well she she got knocked out in the i think it was the first round um partly be- yeah but i mean it's partly because her style is literally come forward it's it's scrappy it's it's high volume and in the amateur game that just doesn't cut it now if you look at taylor in the amateur obviously um you know gold medalist um Perfect amateur, well, not perfect amateur career, but outstanding amateur career. Technically, very, very good. Didn't work out for Pursoon. Um, 
she's had a nightmare. She, I think she also had pneumonia earlier in the year. She had surgery. Um, and for me, those haven't been factored into the, into, into the price here at all. Um, Taylor's 70 ish percent chance. I think that's okay. Um, I certainly think it will go rounds with, with women's rounds being what, uh, sorry, with women's fights being what they are. Um, you know, two minute rounds. This is a, a world title fight, but it's only ten rounds, which is the you know the the, the kind of normal distance for a, a women's title fight. Um, that's not that long, and Persoon has such a good engine, and she's so relentless. I, unless she gets caught and, and walks into something, I don't see Taylor stopping her. And likewise, I don't think that she. I don't think Taylor's going to kind of be naive enough to fall into that same kind of trap where I think she was taken a little bit um, off guard last time. She was. Pursue might have might have surprised her a little bit. So, in in many ways, Taylor could look at this and say, "Well, I, you know, I, I'm the better boxer. I know what I did wrong last time. I'm just going to box her. I'm going to keep her at range, um, and I'm just going to win a decision." And I think if she did that, then it could be quite an easy fight for her. I certainly don't think it's going to be. It's a really interesting fight because the first fight was so good, but at the same time, I don't think this is going to be anything like the same kind of spectacle. Um, just because I think T- Taylor will adapt and, and fight completely differently. Yeah, I think she'll be in and out, won't she? Just kind of get the win and kind of get get away a bit like Joshua box with Ruiz. I think that'll be the plan. So you've got um, you've got Dillian White and, and Katie Taylor both kind of similarly priced by the market. So if you, Chris, I'll go to you first. You have to pick one, Dillian White or Katie Taylor. Who would you side with? Uh, in in terms of what is a better better value bet, you mean? Um, yeah. <sighs> I mean, in terms of the risk factor, I would go with Katie Taylor because I think that obviously with heavyweight boxing um, and especially at world level heavyweight boxing, one punch definitely can change a change a fight. Um, in terms of women's boxing at that weight, I don't think that the chances of or the probability of that happening is as high. So if I had to pick one, it, if I was to put my mortgage on it, it would certainly be Katie Taylor. And what about you, Tom? Don't put your mortgage on it, Chris. Don't do that. <laughs> we, we can't condone that. Um, look, I, I actually think even at the the prices being uh, where White is slightly bigger, you know, 1.296, I think uh, you, you said, Ben. Um, if Taylor is, is shorter, 1.25, let's say, even with that discrepancy, I think she's the better bet. Um, you mentioned it there that there isn't that chance realistically of a one punch KO um, for or inflicted upon Taylor. Whereas with Povetkin, that is a chance. He's he's certainly got um, excuse the, the pun a puncher's chance. Um, that's not going to happen with um, in in the women's fight at all. Persoon will need a decision, um, and I don't think she's going to get it. So f- yeah, for me, Taylor is the the better bet. Uh, and I, I quite like her to win a decision as well, which is about, I think I f- saw about um, four to seven. So what's that, about 63%. Um, she generally does win by decision as well. Um, she's only won a couple of stoppages since she's been a world champion. Um, albeit, you know, yeah, m- most most of those in, in kind of easier fights than pursuing, to be fair. But that's how she t- tends to win. And if you look at that, I think it's, She's fought nine times at world level. Um, she's won all of them, um, but she's only stopped two. So seven out of nine, what's nearly 80%, and the odds are just 63. It, I think that's value as well. 
Right, well, the, the last one I want to cover on the card is the, the Chris Conger and Luther Clay fight. It does look like an intriguing one. Compared to the other two, it's it's fairly close in the market with Conger at 1.769 and Clay at 2.13. So that's a 55-45 percentage split. This one, it's as I said, it's it's a bit closer. There's there's potential there for, for both sides and it's probably a trickier one to call. So... Again, open floor to either of you, but but how would you break this one down, and and is there a worthwhile bet in it for you? Um, yeah. Um, first, Chris Congo is a fire who I know quite well. He's um, boxed on the undercard of a couple of shows that I've been involved with um, on boxing sports and PBT shows. Um, very good talent. Um, he's been very unfortunate with the chances that he's kind of had. Um, Boxing at kind of a a lower level, kind of boxing guys who's expected to beat, but he is a very talented guy. Um, Rangy is a lot taller than Clay, um, and this is a this is a good fight. Um, I think this all this potentially could still steal the card um, on that. I fancy Congo to win. I think he's got the style and the boxing ability to outbox uh, Clay, and I fancy him to come through on points. He's he's a guy I've been quite excited about for a while, but he just hasn't really had the the opportunities he was due to actually fight Cedric Pienard on the um Chris Eubank Jr. James DeGale undercard but he was unfortunately what he was is he was a floater so for anyone who doesn't know what that is a floater in the boxing game is kind of your sign to fight um and if you you know if the tv company will if the tv network will let you on then you know in there's time to do it then you can come on unfortunately on that night he didn't get to box um I was almost a bit annoyed myself because it was a fight I was really looking forward to. Um, Cedric Pienard is a guy who gave Connor Ben, Connor ben um, hell first time at York Hall, um, lost the rematch, but it would have been quite interesting to see how Chris would have kind of adapted to, to, to that fight and how if he had a beat him comfortably, you can kind of make like a bit of a yardstick for where he's at. It's, um, it's difficult to tell at the minute, but for people who aren't too aware of him, um, he is a he is a very talented fighter, um, and he is a he is a good guy, and I I fancy him to come through on this. I think he's a I think he's a decent value bet to win this win this fight on points. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I totally agree. Actually, uh, Chris, it's it's a great fight. Um, it's it's one of the in fact I will say it's it's the best match fight on the card. I think. Um, and it's one that's again been postponed and postponed and postponed, and we're finally getting it, which is which is good. Um, in in a way, I I kind of want to make the the case for Luther Clay now that you've um <laughs> you've you've done so for Congo, um, and Clay I mentioned earlier in the show is you know being the guy who was in in that um, kind of fantastic condition physically. Um, he's a form fighter. Uh, he's he's certainly been more active. Um, he fought on a. I fought on a matchroom show over in Italy. Um, I fought a guy called um, Dario Morello. Um, dropped him a couple of times, but and you know he won it eventually easily um, by decision. And uh, he looked really good. I thought uh, technically a, a, a nice little fighter. Um, and then he beat a guy called Freddie Kewitt, um at the York Hall um, last year as well, which is you know again that's a solid domestic kind of win. Um, the issue for me here, and, and normally what I would say is that. In a in a fight that kind of comes down almost to pick a odds, like you say, you're talking one seven six for for the favourite. That that that's by boxing terms, that's really close. Um, you would always kind of look to say, well, if if it's a pick, and then I'll, I'll go with the uh, you know the odds against on a coin flip. Um, 
the problem I have with backing Clay here, and I, I almost I really want to do it because uh, I really like him, but he's five for eight tall, um, which unfortunately, as I know, it, yeah, it's, it's not particularly tall. Uh, Congo is six foot ish, uh, maybe a little bit more. And the problem Clay is going to have here is that Congo really likes using his um, his kind of range. He's he's a really really kind of slick, but is actually his nickname is too slick. Um, so as that suggests, he's not a he's not a guy who likes kind of going to war and and kind of in, getting into the trenches. He will box clay, I think. Uh, and the problem is, if you're a guy who's giving up, you know, maybe five inches uh, in, in height. That's a, that's a really tough assignment um, because I don't think Clay is going to stop Congo. Um, I think I saw ten to one, um, you know, that that he would do that. So what's that? Eleven point zero. Um, and I mean, I don't. To be honest, I don't think Congo is going to stop Clay, but it does make Clay's um, assignment here a really difficult one. Uh, so I, I certainly see ar- the argument for. Sorry, I, I certainly see the argument for the fifteen to eight. Um, nearly two to one then on the on the Congo decision um so it's you know it's a little bit yeah it, it, it's one of those it's it's a tough fight to call but I certainly do think we're going to see the rounds um yeah they're two they're, they're two guys as well who like we was touching on earlier in terms of uh like you touched on Ben with the lockdown that they they will certainly be in top shape um Tom said about uh, Luther Clay being kind of you know in tremendous condition earlier. Chris Congo's a guy who I suppose I have more of a little bit of a insight into him, but he's he's a guy who's literally never out of the gym. Um trains down in Essex with Jim McDonald, who is, you know, renowned for getting his fighters kind of as fit as they come. Um I think he'll be he'll be he'll be on this fight. And I think that like Tom said as well, the trouble for Clay will be getting inside Congo because He's a very good boxer. And once he starts to move around the ring and use his height, use his range, it's going to be very difficult for him to get inside. So I think that stylistically for Clay, it might kind of not be the best matchup for him. And I think if if Congo can use can use his height, can use his reach, he's got a very good jab. Um, then I I I see Chris probably coming through probably coming from points. But I do think it will be a competitive, a very competitive fight, um, and one that I'm very much looking forward to. Well, sounds like Chris is all for his namesake in, in Chris Congo. And Tom, you you kind of talked me into Luther Clay, then almost talked yourself out of it. So are, are you are you with Chris, with Chris Congo as well? Or are you are you still tempted uh, by think, Luther Clay? Yeah, I I think if, if you're, if, if I'm picking one bet here, uh, Congo decision just seems logically the, the smart, um, the smart pick. And at, at, you know, nearly two to one. It's it's a decent price as well. Um, tricky fight to call, but I I think to think with the with the styles, it's it leans in his favour a little bit. Right, I think that just about does it for today's episode. I want to say thanks to both of you for coming on, and I'm really looking forward to recording again soon. We've got plenty of ground left to cover for the the remainder of the year. Some good fights to look into. So, so thank you both very much for for coming on and, and sharing your insight. No problem. Pleasure, Ben. And anyone looking to bet on boxing, you'll get unbeatable odds at Pinnacle. All of the odds for the upcoming fights are live on Pinnacle.com, so get over there and get involved in the action. As always, please remember to gamble responsibly and tune in next time to Punch's Chance on the Pinnacle podcast. 